Psalm 98. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. The Lord has made known his salvation, his righteousness he has revealed in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song, rejoice and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of a psalm, with trumpets and the sound of a horn. Shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. Let the sea roar in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord. For he is coming to judge the earth. With righteousness he shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. Amen. Oh Lord God, our wonderful King, who leads us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Here we are, Lord, gathered together. Pilgrims, confessing your name and trusting in you here this evening. Lord, we come to you for grace, for refreshment, for help, for encouragement. Please help us to know your near presence this evening, Lord, in Jesus' name. Father, I pray for your help this evening, Lord, to preach. Lord, I can do nothing apart from you. As it says in the prophet Zechariah, not by power, nor by might, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. I pray that your spirit would be here in power this evening, Lord, as we look at the book of Revelation, and that you would encourage your people here this, this evening, that they would be comforted, that they would be exhorted, that they would be helped, Lord, because you love them. I pray that your name would be glorified, and that you would indeed find it fitting to save even one soul tonight, Lord, in our midst. Lord, I love you, and we just... Thank you for this opportunity, again on your Lord's Day, to gather and to give you further prayers and praise. Let your will be done, Lord. Do what seems good to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor ventured into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. We have now come in our study to look at the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. In this final message, in this four-part series on eschatology, we're going to look tonight and examine and study the age to come, the new heavens and the new earth. But just as a preface for those who maybe have not been able to join us or have missed a few of the messages, just a brief recap of where we've been so far. We have seen that in the book of Genesis, in the beginning, God, the Creator's design, was to offer a way for His image bearers to dwell with Him forever in glory by means of covenant. The earth was made so that God's temple would spread throughout it and that God's people would fellowship with Him in righteousness forever. But first, Adam 
the covenant head, had to pass the test and bring humanity into God's promised rest. But through the wiles of that old serpent, the devil, Adam failed and sinned and the whole end goal for creation was derailed. And the earth and humanity was cursed. Yet God, in his mercy and grace, promised a coming offspring of a woman, of the woman, who would undo what had just been done and advance creation to its heavenly destination. We then saw that the seed of the woman is indeed the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And in the Gospel of Matthew, he, the sower of the good seed, came. And he laid out for us how the kingdom of heaven would come in. Essentially, there are two ages. This present evil age and the age to come. And the age to come has two phases. The inaugural phase, which begins at the first coming of Christ. And the second phase, which brings in the age to come at his second coming. Which is going to be the singular and unmistakably visible and audible second coming, which Christ will bring in the age to come. And this second coming is to be our hope, our blessed hope that makes us happy. For it will be our mighty Christ's glorious personal and physical appearing, and it will usher in the age to come, which is the new heavens and the new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness, says Peter. So, with that summary, that brings us to consider the age to come. Finally, we're looking at the new heavens, new earth, the final destination for what God had planned in the Garden of Eden. There's no better place in the scriptures to study and examine the new heavens and the new earth and the age to come than in the book of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22. Now, you could preach at least 10 sermons on Revelation chapter 21 and 22. So what we're going to do this evening is simply a flyover and pointing out some of the things we've looked at in this series to help us connect all the dots. So we're going to divide Revelation chapters 21 and 22 under three headings this evening. The first heading that we're going to look at is the new Israel, the image of God perfected. That's point number one. The new Israel, the image of God perfected. Heading number two. The new Jerusalem, God's temple presence perfected. And then number three, the new covenant, the fall, the curse, and the broken covenant of works reversed. So let us begin in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, under our first heading, the new Israel, the image of God perfected. Hear now the word of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! The tabernacle of God is among the people, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning 
or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give water to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. The one who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly and the unbelieving and abominable and murderers and sexually immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Before we dive into looking at some of the points that we've been looking at in these last four messages, we need, to, we need to understand how to understand Revelation, the book of Revelation. And Brother G.K. Beale gives us a helpful context here. When we look at Revelation 1.1, so the first verse in the book of Revelation reads these words, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, Things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. So this word signified, we need to take a moment and look at that. New Testament commentator G.K. Beale writes this, The Greek verb which is being used there for signify is semino, and it's used in Revelation 1.1 to indicate the manner of God's revelation to John. In classical Greek, the word could have the idea of giving signals, as in giving the signal for a military attack to begin. In this respect, it is significant to recall that the related noun semeon, which means sign, which is used in the New Testament for Jesus' miracles as signs of his power and symbols of his divine power. So the, def- the fact, however, that Revelation 1.1 is an allusion to Daniel 2.45 confirms here the words does mean symbolize. So signify, say mino, is he's saying I'm going to symbolize what you're about to see through this angel. John deliberately uses the language of signify from Daniel 2.45 to portray that what God has been showing him is likewise symbolic. So when we read the book of Revelation, and especially in these two chapters of Revelation 21 and 22, we have to understand that from the beginning, God has given us a key to understanding what Revelation is going to be like. He's going to show us wonderful and terrifying realities through symbols. He's going to use different pictures and signs to symbolize certain realities to give teaching lessons to us. So the symbols themselves, though they are either glorious or terrifying, are pointing to realities that are greater and above what they themselves are. It's symbolic. So as we've understood that, Revelation 1.1 is letting us know how we're to understand Revelation. We look now in these verses. What, What are we seeing here that's symbolically represented in what I just read in chapter 21, verses 1 through 8? Well, I think the very first thing we need to see is that the new heavens... And the new earth is really the antitype of the promised land. It is the thing that was signified by the old covenant promised land, the land of Palestine. 
The new heavens and the new earth is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. The new Israel inhabits the entirety of the new earth forever. So when we see that God is promising Israel in the Old Covenant, the land of Israel, just like everything else we see in the Old Covenant, like the temple worship, the sacrifices, all of the dietary laws, these things were shadows pointing to the greater reality of Christ. But many people miss the fact that the land itself also is a shadow that was pointing to something greater. The land promise itself is pointing to the fact that the new heavens and the new earth, which Christ, the promised seed of the woman, is going to bring in, is going to be the promised inheritance for his people. The promised land itself was a type and shadow of something much greater. So my brothers and sisters, first off, let me tell you, don't go back to the shadow. We're not looking back to the land of Palestine for something else to happen there. We're looking beyond that shadow and that type to something greater, which we're seeing here in the book of Revelation is the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus says this, remember this, Blessed are the meek, for what? They shall inherit the earth. Not the land of Palestine, they shall inherit the earth. This, I believe, is what Jesus had in mind when he said that. He being the Son of God and knowing what he was going to do and what he was going to accomplish and the great realities he was going to bring in, he could see the new earth. He was going to usher it in and he was promising it to his meek disciples saying, Oh, brethren, if you could just see it. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. The good new earth that he was creating. This is the promise that Jesus was speaking of. What else do we see? So we see that the land of Israel... The new Israel's land they're going to live in is the new heavens and the new earth. But not only that, now for Christ's people in the new Israel, in the new heavens and new earth, there is no more tainted communion with him. No more sin that gets in the way of our fellowship with him. No more displeasing God. No more missing the mark. No more thorns in the flesh and no sin that so easily entangles us. The image of God is perfected in the new heavens and new earth. There is no more sin. There is no more death. There is no more crying or mourning. He'll wipe away all tears. What we were created in the beginning to be like, we have arrived at in the new heavens and new earth, perfectly consummated in glory. We will always see his face and always be in perfect communion with him. We'll always be loving him and we'll always be knowing his love for us perfectly. We will be eternally at rest no more worry, no more doubt, no more fear, no more awkwardness, no more loneliness. All of that's fleeing away in the new heavens and new earth. We will be in a state which was intended for Adam to bring us to, which he failed to do, but the second Adam gloriously brings us to. As the old Latin phrase goes, non Passe peccari et mori, which simply means not able to sin and die. We will be in such a confirmed state of glory in the new heavens and the new earth, it won't even be possible for us to sin or die. We can't. We'll be confirmed in glory, just as Christ in his perfected new humanity that he erupted from the grave and was the first fruits of the dead, just as he can never sin or die, neither will we, because we'll be like him in his resurrected body. This is a glorious reality. So we're seeing the, the land, 
promise being fulfilled. We're seeing the new heavens, the new earth being that fulfillment of what God had promised in the old covenant. And we're seeing that the image of God is perfected here in these verses. What else do we see? Well, implied here is that the resurrected bodies that were just talked about prior in Revelation and which we've talked about in the last sermon, which we looked at in Daniel 12 briefly in the second sermon, the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the righteous... These resurrected bodies correlate with the new heavens and the new earth. We'll have resurrected bodies and a resurrected earth with a resurrected life with a resurrected Savior. Think about it this way. God is always a consuming fire. God doesn't change who he is in the new heavens and the new earth. He is glorious. No man can see me and live. That idea of no one can see God and live. Christ Jesus, in the new bodies he's giving us, God, in the new creation that he's making, we will be able to stand in the midst of this consuming fire and not be consumed. His holiness will still be all that it's ever been, but we will now have the ability in physical bodies to stand in his presence and worship him and not fear of being consumed. We read in Exodus the idea that Moses and the Israelites talking about, oh Lord, we wish that you would go with us into the promised land after the sin of the golden calf. He's like, I would break forth amongst this congregation, destroy them. His presence would annihilate them. But now the new heavens and new earth, we have resurrected bodies to be able to behold our God with our physical eyes and not be destroyed. That is glorious. Our bodies will be able to take, as it were, the glory fire of God and dwell amongst him forever. And finally, we will continue to know more of God and therefore love him more because our love for God is rooted in our knowing of him. And the more we love him, the more joy and happiness we will have. We will continue to know God in the new heavens and new earth. He will continue to reveal himself to us. We'll never exhaust our knowledge of God like, yep, now we know everything about him. Every day, for thousands of years, billions of years, we will continue to know more of our God and he will dwell with us. And that's ultimately the greatest news of Revelation 21, is that God will dwell amongst his people. God, who has desired this from the beginning, but because of sin, had to close off the Garden of Eden, and now is with us forever. And we will always behold his face and we'll always get to know him more and therefore we'll continue to grow in our love for him. This is glorious, and this is most certainly true, as it says. So that's number one. More could have been said. More can be said about all these things, but just snippets of what we're seeing through these sermons of what God intended in the garden and what we're getting in the new heavens and new earth. So heading number two, the new Jerusalem, God's temple presence perfected. So not only is the land perfected, the new heavens and new earth, not only is the image of God perfected, but now God's special temple presence amongst his people is perfected in the new Jerusalem. Picking up in verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, that is John, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a, like a very valuable stone, like a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had great and high walls with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and the names were written on the gates, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. 
There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring, had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. He measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper. The city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, chalcedony. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, sardonyx. The sixth, sardius. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. The tenth, chrysopras. The eleventh, jacinth. The twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. A ton of material there. Well, I want to point to something very specific for those of you who are in the first sermon here. Looking at this section in the very beginning here, G.K. Beale writes this. It is significant that these verses combine Ezekiel 43.5, which says, And the Spirit lifted me up, with Ezekiel 40, verse 2. In the visions of God, he brought me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain, and on it there was a structure of a city. So the combination of these two verses from Ezekiel indicates beyond doubt that the vision in Revelation 21.11 is to be identified with the blissful vision of the future temple in Ezekiel 40, verse, or 40 and 48. The angel transports John to a great and high mountain where also he sees a new city temple. It's likely located. Old Testament prophecy, as in Ezekiel, understood the coming of Jerusalem to be situated on a high mountain. So what do we see here? The garden temple of God's first creation. He set Eden on top of a mountain. It was to be a special temple presence. And the, the point of that was to spread that throughout the whole earth. That failed. But now in the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, whose temple is the Lamb and God, comes down and is situated, as it were, on a high mountain, and it fills the whole earth. The temple project that was begun in Genesis and was derailed and Jesus picked back up is now brought to completion in Revelation 21. This is supposed to bring us and hearken us back to the Garden of Eden and we're supposed to look at Ezekiel and realize, wait a minute, 
What Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 was not some future physical temple that's going to be here in this age. It's pointing to a glorious new temple, which we see in Revelation 21 is the fulfillment of God's temple. Notice this, God's special temple presence is not limited to just Jews and Levites anymore. All have intimate access to him. The theme of God's special temple presence has reached its climax in the absence of a physical temple building. There is no longer a physical temple building. The Lamb and God himself are the temple. And they fill the whole city. So what is that saying? This new Jerusalem itself is in itself this this temple city of God. The perfect cubed structure of the new Jerusalem parallels the Holy of Holies. The inner sanctum of the temple now encompasses the whole city. The whole city is a sanctuary. We see that the the, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven is a perfect cube. If you paid attention to those verses, it said its length is as long as its width and its height. It's a cube. And that's supposed to harken us back to the Old Testament where the Holy of Holies, the place of God's special presence in the temple, was a perfect cube overlaid with gold. What do we see the new heavens and new earth? The new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven. Arrayed in gold and glory, a perfect cube. It's supposed to symbolize something to us. So yes, many people have talked, well, it's going to be this glorious cube coming down out of heaven. And I don't want to mock that, but the idea is we have to realize what it's symbolizing. It's God's perfect presence, perfected. God's original plan or blueprint for his creation is Revelation 21 and 22. What we see in these final chapters of Revelation is what God intended for his creation. He's showing us what his plan was from the beginning and we're praising Jesus Christ because he's the only one that could bring us there. That's the good news is Jesus is the perfect temple builder and he has perfected that and now he brings it to uh, fruition. Brother T. Desmond Alexander says this, whereas Genesis presents the earth as a potential building site, Revelation describes a finished city. So Genesis, beginning, potential building site, Revelation, finished city. All is done. One other thing to note, a lot of information I know, we're trying to do a flyover here. The measurements for how large the city is, it really works out to over a thousand miles long, a thousand miles wide or so, or even more so. What's really interesting about that is that in John's time, during the writing of the book of Revelation, probably in the 90s AD, the measurements of the New Jerusalem, the, the how large it is, actually correlated with the boundaries of the known Roman world at that time, the civilized world. So what are we seeing here? It is showing us that the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven is encompassing all of known creation at that point. So don't think of it as just simply the new Jerusalem coming down and and part of the new heavens and new earth is going to be occupied by it and there's going to be some like outer lands. No. What's being pictured here is God's perfect presence with his people are going to encompass the entire new heavens and new earth. The whole boundaries of the new creation will be the city temple of God with his people. As the church expands, God's dwelling place expands. So now in the new heavens and the new earth, God's dwelling place encompasses the whole earth. There is a universality of God's presence in the new heavens and the new earth. This is the completion of the biblical motif of the divine presence on the earth. God's purpose was to dwell with us forever. And he didn't want to just dwell in one location. He wanted to be all throughout his creation with us. And that's what he's doing. That's what we see in the new heavens and new earth.
T. Desmond Alexander goes on to say this, to live, to be an inhabitant in this new Jerusalem, to live in the new Jerusalem is to experience life in all its fullness and vitality. It is to live as one has never lived before. It is to be in the prime of life for the whole of one's life. There will be no aging there. Prime of one's life for the whole of one's life. We'll be in perfect physical condition. We'll be in perfect, optimal condition to worship God and serve him forever. God knows what he desires of us, and he knows what we need to serve him. He will give us bodies fitted for that. And we'll be in that vitality of life forever. We will be in the prime of life forever. No more decaying, no more suffering, no more soreness. No more seeing our weaknesses and falling and failing. God knows what we need, and it'll be perfect. New things will continue to happen in the age to come. It's not going to be some boring existence where we're playing the same song over and over and over again, and nothing new is happening. There will be new things to happen, new things to learn, new things to do with the new bodies God has given us. This is our hope that the giftings and the callings and the things God has given us that we love, we can do there with him for his glory, building for him, making music for him. But as I say these things, perhaps some of you right now are thinking, okay, if it's going to be glorious and we're all going to have all this joy and we're going to have everything we need, what about all those New Testament texts that talk about all the different rewards and the varying degrees of rewards certain people will have as opposed to others? And that's a good thought. Because yes, the New Testament is full of these texts that seem to talk about if one, says John, or Paul says, if one builds on the foundation of Christ with gold, silver, and precious stones, and another builds on that foundation with hay, wood, and stubble, the day, the judgment day of the Lord is coming, and it will examine their works. And those who built on the foundation of Christ with just wood, hay, and stubble, those works will be burned up. But if you built with precious stones, gold, and silver, you'll receive those rewards, as it were. We also see Jesus talking about the, uh, the parable of the talents. Some are given 10, 5, and 1, and some multiply their talents. And in the way that they've multiplied it, that is the degree that they are rewarded. We see this all throughout the New Testament. So how is it that some people will have greater degrees of rewards in the new heavens and earth, yet we will be content and joyful and not envying one another? Well, I think Jonathan Edwards really is helpful in giving a good illustration of how those, things to, those two things go together. There will be some people with more rewards, but yet everyone will be content. He says this. Picture it this way in this illustration. We are all like vessels. And if you look at an empty vessel, each vessel has a different capacity to contain certain things. So in the new heavens and new earth, we will be vessels. Each one, in the degree that we're able to enjoy God, will have a larger vessel, as it were. If you dunk empty vessels into the ocean and bring them up, each vessel is filled to the brim. But yet some vessels are larger and able to contain more water, as it were. Yet all the vessels as they've been filled, are filled to the brim. So too, Jonathan Edwards helps us see this, 
everyone will have different capacities to enjoy God by how faithful we have been on the, in this life, but yet we will still be filled to the brim with joy. We will not be discontent. We will not be envying other people that potentially have more rewards with us. We will all be filled to the brim, yet some people will have a greater capacity, as it were, with a greater vessel to be more filled in the sense that they were faithful in this life, not because they're somehow inherently better, but because by God's grace they were able to obey him. And it's all a gift of grace anyways. So think of it in that way. There's not going to be envying and looking at other people and saying, man, I really wish I had their gifts and therefore sinfully desiring them. No, you're going to be content. You're going to be so filled with joy and you're going to be given the capacity to enjoy the Lord. I know that's a side note. I, I just want that to be bared in mind here because yes, there's going to be different degrees of rewards, but we will all be perfectly content and joyful. Anyways, back to the New Jerusalem. So remember, in all this description we're seeing, this, the, all these precious stones, jasper and, and uh, uh, sapphire and all these things, these things are used, this gold imagery. I know so many people, we talk about golden streets. That is glorious. It's a glorious thing to think about. But remember, this is symbolic. John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is using valuable things in this life like gold. And is pointing the fact that we, we value these things. They're, they're very precious. They're glorious. He's using these images to point to something way beyond that. The city, the bride, being described in precious stones is to symbolize the glory of God that clothes God's people who are both the city and the bride. I think that's what it's pointing to. It's, it's to show the glory that's going to be covering God's people. It's going to be way beyond just simply having gold and precious stones on you. You're going to be covered with the glory of God. What about the walls? We see New Jerusalem is just this super walled structure. The walls represent the indestructible essence of the safety and fellowship that God's people have with them. The devil, that old serpent, has been destroyed. The holy city and its inhabitants are now eternally secured. That's what we see with the walls. It's to point to the fact that we will be secured forever in the new heavens and new earth. We will be safe forever. No one will make us afraid. No one will interrupt our fellowship with the Lord. We will be secured forever. Cornelius Van Til wonderfully betrays this concept when he says this, quote, In the regeneration of all things, he that sits upon the throne is surrounded by the 24 elders and the four living creatures. The whole creation is there. The whole creation is redeemed. No discordant voice is heard. All sing the great song of the redeemed creation. Through redemption, creation's purpose was accomplished. Where are the enemies? They are sealed in a soundproof exclusion chamber. Satan has lost the struggle. God is God. End quote. Total victory. Total security. Never have to worry for a nanosecond that anything will ever go wrong again. We are secured in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens, the new earth. Finally, heading number three. So we've seen the new heavens, new earth, which is just a promised new land for the new Israel to live in. We've seen the new Jerusalem, the new temple that's perfected. And now we're going to see how the fall has been reversed, the curse has been reversed, and the broken covenant of works is going to be reversed through the new covenant. Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. Continuing on. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming 
from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no longer any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illuminate them, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. As you saw in the quote before, Cornelius Van Til said, this new creation is brought to its place where we're at through redemption. Through the new covenant, we get to this place where the curse is reversed. The new covenant is the means by which all this is brought about and all has been accomplished. We read this already, as it were, in the beginning. Behold, says Jesus, I am making all things new. He said, right, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. What is done? Salvation, redemption, new creation. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says Jesus. The beginning and the end, I will give water to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. I hope some of you are picking up on this already. The new covenant themes we're seeing here. The water of life. Living water. Where, where does that bring your mind to? These are new covenant language. This is new covenant language being used here. We see the water of life clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God. We see the tree of life is back. Instead of it being associated with the broken covenant of works, now it is there for all to have access to. It seems to be on both sides of the river. It's, an, it's, it's, it's larger than life now. So the broken covenant of works has been reversed. We have access to the tree of life. And hopefully many of your minds went to John 7. Jesus talking about the waters of life. What is that? It is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit being poured out and being filled to all the brim of all those who are in the new creation. The Spirit's presence will be full. John 7, 37. Jesus says this, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus' promise of those who would be in his new covenant, those who would be born again, of the living hope through the resurrection of the dead, those who are going to get a new heart, who Ezekiel says they're gonna, uh, God's going to remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. This is new covenant language. The covenant that Jesus initiated when he died and was buried and rose again and he poured out his spirit on his disciples at Pentecost, this new covenant language is here in Revelation. The spirit of life, the river of life being here. And now it's flowing from his presence for all to have, to all to be filled with to the brim. But where else do we see this? Again, we're going to go back to Ezekiel. Pay close attention to this section here. Ezekiel again in Ezekiel 47 here is talking about this temple that God is showing him. This Many people have called it the third temple, but what is it? Ezekiel 47. 
starting in verse 1. Listen to the connections with Revelation 22. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple towards the east. For the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. He brought me out by the way of the north gate, and he led me on the outside of the outer gateway that faces east. And there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits, and he brought me through the rivers, or through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the water, and it came up to my waist. Again, he measured 1,000, and it was a river that I could not cross, for the water was too deep, water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen these things? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned there, along the bank of the river were what? Very many trees on one side and the other. Along the bank of the river on this side and that will grow all kind of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. What does that sound like? That's Revelation 22. That's what we just read. Ezekiel is seeing here a picture of the glorified new temple, new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth, and the Spirit's presence like water flowing from the presence of the Lord that heals all, that restores all, that gives life to all. That is what Ezekiel is seeing. This is what the third temple that we've heard so much about is. It's the new heavens and the new earth. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ, and he brings them all to fruition in the new heavens and the new earth. I hope you are seeing that. That's the fulfillment. That's the glorious antitype for all of these promises in the Old Testament. G.K. Beale says this, The kingdom, the whole kingdom of the new creation itself, is the most overarching of biblical promises, of which the above new things, covenant, temple, Israel, and Jerusalem, are but facets. The kingdom of God, which was derailed in the, in the garden, which Jesus set back on track and brings us to in the end, that's the ultimate goal. The kingdom of God, which Jesus brings in, and the new, the new temple, the new Jerusalem, the new covenant, the new earth, these are all just facets of the kingdom of God. And that's an over, the overarching theme of the scriptures. I just I encourage you, brothers and sisters, for a moment, picture it. You will be there, taking from the tree of life and a resurrected body in glory forever, never having to worry that you will not be able to find God or know where he is. He will be there in front of you. You will have fullness of joy forever, pleasures forevermore, Loved ones whom you've lost, they will be there with you as well. Restored fellowship, seeing your Savior, knowing that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, knowing that his name is written on your forehead, secured forever. You've arrived, pilgrim, at the celestial city. You are there forever, and no one will make you afraid again. No one will take this from you.
But again, as I've said in my other messages, this glorious promise, this hope, this indestructible goodness that's coming are for the Lord's people only. It's for the sheep that Jesus died for. It is for those who have received the gift of eternal life that Jesus paid for with his body and blood. Revelation 22, 17 says this, And let him that is a thirst come, and whoever will, let them take the water of life freely. For you here this evening, who have not taken the water of life freely, who have not come to Christ, who have not repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus and all that he is and all that he has done, he speaks a word to you this evening and he says, come, come to this water, the river of life, clear as crystal, and come take freely and drink of it. He lays this out for you, the water of life freely, or, as we read in Revelation 21, the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's the choice. Water of life freely, lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Jesus is gloriously offering you the water of life freely. You don't have to earn it. Jesus earned it for you. And he's giving it to you freely. The highest insult in all, of you, in all the universe is to say, no, thank you. Jesus went through things we would never be able to comprehend to win this water of life for us, to give us the new heavens and new earth. And when we shun him and say, no thanks, it's fitting that you would end up in the lake of fire. And this is the, this is the scandal and the tragedy and the horrors of unbelief. To those who are finally God's enemies, those who reject the gospel and reject Christ and are finally reprobate, instead of the free gift of the water of life, they choose the lake of fire. We've just seen the glories of what God has promised in the new heavens and the new earth and the, the wonders of it. And then it's free. It's a gift of grace and he does it out of his love and he offers it to humanity. And people still say, I want to, no, I don't want you there. And they go to the lake of fire. Let that not be anyone in this room this evening. Let us all be able to look at one another's faces on that day and say, praise the Lord, we heard that. Praise the Lord, we're here together. Let's praise God for all eternity and not one of us be lost. That's my hope. Repent and trust in Christ this evening. Again, a thousand more things could have been said over these verses in Revelation. But I just have a few closing applications in light of what we've seen in this sermon this evening and the last few sermons. So in light of this, in light of this great city that is to come, in light of the new heavens and the new earth and the promises and the blessed hope which we saw last week, in light of all these things, how are we as Christians to live in this current age that we are in? Well, I believe we are to live as sojourners. We are to live as pilgrims. Because as it says in Hebrews 13, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. 
So if that be true, if we are to really live as pilgrims, if this is not our home, if our home is coming when Christ brings it, we should live a pilgrim lifestyle or a pilgrim ethic. So what is the pilgrim ethic of the church? What is to be the pilgrim lifestyle of the Christian in this age? I believe that this pilgrim ethic, positively, it is for the church of Jesus Christ to primarily complete the Great Commission. We, as the church, the bride of Christ, are to preach the everlasting gospel. We're to pray without ceasing. We're to worship in spirit and in truth, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody in our hearts to the Lord. We're to raise up missionaries and send them out so that every tribe, nation, and language hears the gospel. We are to evangelize our local contacts, baptize and make disciples. We're to raise up elders, plant churches, maintain them, and reform them through, the church, through church discipline, through teaching and preaching, the whole counsel of God and the administrating of the sacraments or the ordinances. We're to raise our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. We're to fulfill our biblical roles in our home and in our workplace. We are to seek to present every man mature in Christ. We are to do good to all men, especially to those of the household of faith. We are to do good works that glorify God, like obeying his commandments, helping the poor, the orphan, and the widow. And as we do all these things, as pilgrims, as we serve the Lord in these ways, we are to be patient and persevere in persecution and in trials that inevitably come our way because of our Christ-likeness. If you live in this way as a pilgrim, doing these things, you will be persecuted because you're being like Christ. And if you're going to be like Christ, the world will persecute you because it persecuted him. When it comes to our relationship with the governments we find ourselves living under, the church is to pray for those who are in authority over us. We're to proclaim the truth of the law and gospel to them and hope that the Lord saves them so that we as Christians can live unhindered, quiet, and peaceable lives in our continued task to spread the gospel and do good to all men, waiting on the blessed hope, fixing our hope on Jesus' coming. Therefore, in light of all this, I believe it is not the individual Christians or the church's duty to Christianize the Gentile silver governments of the world or in other words, to seek by political means to make all the nations of the world Christian nations. That's adding an eschatological burden on the church in this age that our Lord hasn't put on us. Christ is going to bring in the perfect worldwide theocracy when he comes in his glory and ushers in the new heavens and new earth. So in this age, the government's task is mainly negative, per Romans 13, to maintain order in society by punishing the outward acts of the violation of the law of God, specifically the second table of the moral law. So in other words, we Christians should support religious liberty when it comes to the first table law while we pray and labor for, labor for spiritual awakenings and revivals as we patiently wait the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the new heavens and the new earth which he will usher in. This, in so many words, not exhaustively, but this, I believe, is the pilgrim ethic of the church. This is the pilgrim ethic of the Christian. We are, be, we are to be primarily new heavenly and new earthly minded. And I hope that you guys are seeing that in all of this, the ideas of heaven and hell, really, we should, it should be new heavens, new earth, lake of fire. That's really the two, the two destinies. It's not heaven and hell. Heaven and hell are the intermediate states. We are to be new heavenly and new earthly minded. 
And if you are new heavenly and new earthly minded, it will manifest in faithful, industrious kingdom work in this life and on this earth, while at the same time not getting too entangled or tainted or corrupted with the affairs of this life, while also being wise as serpents and gentle as doves, especially in the varied political contexts we, the church, find ourselves in. So in other words, we are to fight a holding action until our Lord returns. The pilgrim ethic manifests itself in the life of Christ-like, cross-bearing suffering in this age as we realize this is not our home and that we are exiles and sojourners in this age on this present earth. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, though we still function as good dual citizens in the whatever country we find ourselves in, and we keep engaging until the kingdom comes. We're trying to be balanced here. Yes, we're not going to re- retreat into the four walls of the church, but we're also not going to put our hope in trying to, win, trying to bring in the kingdom through our own means in this age. We're going to keep engaging, fixing our eyes on the hope of the second coming and being faithful, but living as pilgrims and recognizing every day this is not our home. My brothers and sisters, good Christian pilgrims, stay on the king's highway. Don't let people come and distract you and lead you away from the good path that our king has pioneered for us. Keep your eyes fixed on the blessed hope. Keep your eyes fixed on the glories of the new heavens and the new earth and keep walking down that highway. Our good shepherd will lead us faithfully to the new heavens and new earth. He will shepherd us there faithfully. He will help you. Don't be distracted. Don't let worldly wise men and all these characters bring you aside. Don't be distracted by vanity fair. Don't be discouraged by the the slew of despond. Don't be overcome by legality and all of these other things that would distract the Christian to be a pilgrim. View all things in this life that I am a pilgrim on my way to the celestial city. And I am going to fix my eyes on Jesus Christ and cry out to my shepherd to help me and not get too comfortable here because this is not your home. I hope in light of Revelation 21 and 22, we've seen that. We're, We're pilgrims on our way to the celestial city. And I hope you, dear Christian pilgrims this evening, are encouraged to continue to persevere for the way is hard on the king's highway at times but it is the right way, and it ends in glory beyond compare. Again, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor entered in the heart of man the things God has prepared for those who love him. Don't leave the good way. Keep on. Press on, my brothers and sisters. I leave you with this benediction. In Revelation 22, verse 20, He who testifies to these things, all the things we've seen, says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for that good hope. We thank you for the blessed hope of Christ's coming, which will usher in that new heavens and new earth. Lord, we all earnestly desire to be there with you, Lord to rejoice and sing forever and ever. But Lord, we still have our pilgrimage to complete here on this earth, Lord, and you know that. You're a good Father, and you know what we need before we ask. I pray for each and every one of us this evening, Lord, that you would help us 
Deliver us from the distractions of this world, Lord. Help us to live as faithful pilgrims, good Christian pilgrims here. Help us, Lord. We can't do this without you, Lord. We're so easily distracted, so easily discouraged, so easily knocked off course. But Lord, help us to meditate on the things of your word, the promises which we saw in the book of Revelation. Help us to think about these things, Lord, and not lose sight of them, Lord. Please open our eyes, Lord Jesus. And for those in this room who do not understand what is being said, those who do not understand the glories of who you are, Lord Jesus, and what you have done, please open the blind eyes and unlock the deaf ears this evening, Lord. Please come down, Lord, and have mercy on this generation. I pray that you would bless us in our time of prayer now, Father, and we just lift up all of this to you, Lord. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen.